Okay, uh, today we're going to start a new woman from the Reformation, Argula von Grimbach. And there's two handouts on the um, counter over there. And the the one I'm just going to point out real quick is uh, one that you can just kind of file away. Um, The one with the pictures on the front, you you can kind of keep in front of you. But the other one, that is for reading for over the week, next week. So that will be the thing that, that will be the document that we'll be discussing next week. All right, so we're going we're gonna to discuss Argula von Grimbach just two weeks. I, I really am going to try my best to keep it at two weeks, okay? Two weeks. And um, so Argula von Grimbach, so her dates are there, 1492 to maybe 1554. Um, what's interesting about her is that we don't have a lot of historical record in terms of her life, like when it began and when it ended, but she really became uh, part of the Reformation discussion uh, in 1523. But before we get to that, is um, the, uh, so she's from Bavaria, and you know, you know, when, uh, um, all right, so, you know, when we talk about Germany, we talk about Wittenberg, you know, I, I don't know if you can see this, but Bavaria is right here, that's kind of South Germany, Germany is kind of all the way around there, and she is from southern, southern Germany, in a sense, South Central, but this part of Germany, like, um, Katharina Regina von Greifenberg. This is mainly stays Roman Catholic. Although Nuremberg is a uh, very Lutheran city, but she's outside this town right here. So this is kind of where she's from. Just, you know, geography. You always wondered why those maps are in your Bible. You know, so just kind of give you a frame of mind. Okay. Um, so she's, she's from Bavaria. So she's in, in the midst of a, a place that... Oh, and another important thing about her and her life is the fact that there is... Munich is, is you know, really close. And Munich, of course, is a major uh, powerhouse in this time. So she actually goes and lives with uh, a queen. Queen um, Kundid, Kunig... Unda, Kundinuga. I, I don't know how to say her name. Thank you, Krista. Can you say that louder? There we go. Thank you. So she actually is her uh, lady in waiting, lady in waiting for her. And uh, that queen is the daughter of the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. So Argula von Grimbach is very close to a lot of earthly and temporal authority and power. So that's, that's important for us to remember because as you read her her writing, she makes note that she is of noble heritage. And that, for many of us, sounds very arrogant and kind of, you know, you know, uh, just full of herself. However, given this time, the nobility have a certain uh, responsibility to rule wisely. So much so that Martin Luther actually writes to the German nobility. Nobility are, you know, landholders, they are ones who have authority in their lands or their regions. And so Martin Luther actually calls to the German nobility to say, hey, we need, you need to act in a Christian way. So there's probably a good argument that her, even though she is, so her, her, um, uh, her maiden name, her nobility name is von Stauff. von Stauff. That means that means nothing to us and really does, is inconsequential to what we're going to do. It just to the point that von Stauff at this time was a family that had well, very well connected family. Um, but she married von Grimbach. Von Grimbach family. Uh, her husband Frederick was actually a knight. Which sounds kind of romantic and cool, but uh, he wasn't. It, it was basically a step down for her. And that's because of some of her von Stauff family made some uh, foolish choices about, um, well, 
they decided to be on the wrong side of a war, basically. Um, and the emperor, they, they, they were trying to have a little bit more authority and power over and against the emperor. The emperor ended up winning, and all those who were on the wrong side either were executed or lost their lands, and von Stauff was part of that. But she was able to, her, her and maybe her most immediate family was able to hang on to a lot of her lands, but in terms of like being part of the in crowd, she kind of wasn't. She's kind of fringe. So she had to marry down. <laughs> she had to marry a knight who was much older than her. Okay, anyways, she, um, as I mentioned, she was a lady-in-waiting. You know, here's the thing. I don't really know exactly what a lady-in-waiting means. She's friends with the... She's friends with the queen. Uh, I kind of just personal assistant. I don't know if we have really any sort of analogy to today. So, yep, that's right. It's confident, advisor, gopher... Just whoever, just she's just there to. She's waiting, waiting for the queen to tell her what to do. So we're all thinking Downton Abbey. You realize that? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> oh no, I don't actually. So thank you for saying that. Well, I was thinking Well, what does that mean? So what does that mean? Is there a character? Uh, is there a lady in waiting in Downton Abbey? It's more Victoria. Victoria. Who's Victoria? Hang on, we'll slow down. I, I'm, I'm lost here. Queen Victoria of England. Yeah. She had ladies in waiting. It's a PBS. Series. I was going to say, is that a television show? Okay. Yeah. Yes. Series of, over the years. I shouldn't yeah. have opened that door. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably similar. Great. Great analogy. I don't watch TV anymore, so. I don't know. I I can't stay up past 8.30, so. Yeah, there's no, I don't know. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Please, more. Please, more. That's all I have to say. Okay. So, um, oh, but, okay, so she became a lady-in-waiting mainly because her parents had died, and her uncle, Hieronymus, uh, was kind of her, her caretaker, and he really couldn't take care of her. So through the family connections, the Von Stauff connections, she was able to go into the court of Munich. So that was real helpful because she actually met a man named John von Staupitz. Now, if anyone knows any other Lutheran history, that name should, like... Red flag should go up. Does anyone know who Johann von Stelpitz is by chance? He's a hymn I'm sure he was, but that's he's probably not most he's most well known to be a confidant of Martin Luther. He was he was in cahoots with Martin Luther. Um, he actually ran the monastery where Luther Luther was at. So he uh, anyways, so again, so you have Ugula von Grimbach, who most people have never heard of, and in fact, she was well-known up through the 16th century. In 1572, Lutherans, as Lutherans became more established, they actually wrote books of martyrs. And she was included, even though she wasn't a martyr. Okay, so Lutherans changed what martyrdom meant insofar as it became more about confessing the faith boldly, not necessarily always dying for the faith. And she confessed the faith very boldly, and we'll, we'll take a look at what she did. But anyways, after, basically in the 1600s, she fell out of like history, and it wasn't until early 20th century that someone kind of resurrected this uh, kind of conversation, this research, and it was kind of serendipitous. But as, you, as we have learned more about her, she actually was actually a very popular uh, pamphleteer. So one of the things about women in the 16th century is that, you know, they weren't allowed to go to university. The, only the rich were, had access to education, to tutors. So it wasn't like there was, um, you know, how Martin Luther wrote, like, commentaries and theological works. Women weren't, weren't just didn't do that because they didn't have the authority or access to that. Two things that they did do. Well, three things, actually. I'm sorry. Write hymns. Uh, write pamphlets. And that's uh, what Argula really does. And then write letters. That sounds kind of strange. But letters back in those days, often, especially if you wrote to someone with influence, were usually written under the presumption they will be published. So... Um, those pamphlet, pamphlet, uh, these three were the areas where women were 
kind of thrived in terms of writing, writings, historical documents. Women often had great influence, but it just wasn't really written down ever, unfortunately. Um, there's a couple exceptions to that, though, but for the most part. So as we uh, read Argula's writings, she's, she's uh, writing a pamphlet. Now, what does a pamphlet mean? A pamphlet is usually connected to some event that happens. So she's writing a pamphlet, a, a reaction to a heresy trial in uh, Ingolstadt. Ingolstadt, I pointed to it. Uh, there was a university there. And one of their students, I'm sorry, uh, one of these new, former student, new professor, lecturer, started lecturing on Martin Luther's writings. Well, that was not, that was not cool. <laughs> so they um, ransacked the guy's room. Oh, and his, his last name was Seehofer. Now, that is in this, basically, I, I, I took a little section out of a book. And that whole thing tells a little bit of biographical information, but it's mainly a great introduction to the other writing. But uh, the, boy, the, the, the young man's name, was his last name was Seehofer. And he was brought up on heresy trials, stood trial. It was a sham trial. There was no really debate. It was, do you believe in the heretic, yes or no? So, of course, if he said yes, he'd be burned at the stake. If he said no, he'd be saved. And he was really saved, though, because of his, his dad was a uh, noble person. Everybody else would have been burned at the stake without any... The, 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 the thing was, is, do you want to be burned at the stake and your soul go to hell? Or you can be burned at the stake and you could probably go to purgatory. That was usually the choices. But because it was a no, noble family, he, he was actually... He was basically went to prison in a monastery... But the story for that young Seehofer guy, he actually escapes the monastery later on, decades later, and actually goes back to Wittenberg and becomes a very influential pastor in the Lutheran faith. Very, very interesting. Um, but anyways, so he goes uh, to trial, and he's, he's not going to die. He doesn't want to die, so he recants, and then he's shipped off to uh, this monastery. Well, there is no one who stands up for him, this, this boy. None of the theologians, no uh, noble person, nobody. And then the only person who speaks out is Argula von Grimbach, which is really unheard of for a woman to enter into something like this. For two reasons. One, because of her gender, because she's a woman. And the other reason is because she has no theological training. But yet, as you read her document, she uses basically two reasons for her interjecting herself into this situation. One is because she's a noble. She feels like she has this responsibility to take care of this young man. And the more primary one, though, is because of her baptism. And that's going to be kind of what we're going to focus on over the next couple of weeks, is as a, as a Christian, when you're baptized, you're given an authority, um, a calling to do something. So this is very, very important for us to, as we read her pamphlet or her document, because the people who respond to her want to make it about something else. And we want to make sure that we are able to articulate very clearly. Because once we do, then a lot of interesting things come out. You're like, whoa. And very applicable than today. All right. Um, oh, so most of her writing, though, happens within about a year and a half. 1523, but by the end of 1524, she basically goes silent. No more writings. Well, for a couple of reasons. One is because she uh, has four children. Her husband dies, and she's left paying off all debts, running the farms, taking care of the house. Um, that's probably the primary reason. She, uh, there, there's, uh, so 
you know, as these, in the 20th century, they found all this historical information about her, and they found a lot of, like, letters about debts and things, and it was kind of a full-time job taking care of her family. But the one thing she really sacrificed for was her, child, her children's education. She pulled all stops to provide the best education for her children. Unfortunately, all three of them died. One lived. Um, and so she, I mean, yeah. You kind of put it that way. You're like, yeah, of course. Nobody has time for anything besides just keeping life together. So, um, but even in the midst of that, she was able to, in 1530, attend the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. The Augsburg Confession is this historical document that basically makes Lutherans Lutherans. Um, but she, was, she, she attended. So even after her six years of you know, silence publicly, she was still able to be present. She met with Martin Luther. Actually, she met with Martin Luther and gave tips on breastfeeding. <laughs> This is a kind of interesting uh, dialogue. Uh, Martin Luther makes reference to this. We have no letters from her to Martin Luther, but within Martin Luther's letters, he references her. So she's a, she's a very well-connected woman in terms of Lutheran history. But yeah, she, she um, basically says to, to Martin Luther, hey, here's some tips. Pass them on to your wife, Catherine von Bohr. So... Um, Yes, she had no idea, too. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, obviously, Martin Luther's wife, this is all new to her because she was a nun. So, um, Martin Luther's wife was a former nun. Oh, I was going to say, how does it be a nun in Beelbo? Yeah, so. <laughs> but, um, yeah, anyways, so this is a very, very interesting woman. And as we, as we kind of dive into what she writes, um, it's, it's really important to kind of keep... But I said earlier, this, this uh, calling of baptism in mind. And, and how we're going to actually approach that is we're going to actually dive into Matthew chapter 10. So um, she, we'll try this one more time. So, you know, like I said, she was part of the uh, noble von Stahl family. And when she was a young girl, she was taught to read. And she was given a Koberger Bible. All right, I'll show you here real quick once... Uh, the Koberger Bible. You might say to yourself, oh, here we go. Um, this, is a, this is an image of the Koberger Bible, the outside. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, take a look at the inside. But it is, is an early translation, German translation of the Latin Bible. So she actually grew up uh, reading the Bible in German, but this is an early translation, and it, it would be, uh, my analogy would be, uh, this translation is more like the living translation. A little bit of a translation, a little bit of interpretation, not real technical. And Martin Luther's translation is much more technical. So it would be more like uh, ESV versus that. But th that's not... It, it, this, I would say this is more... Less interpretation than the, the new, or whatever the, it's the living translation, right? The living translation. Anyway, so the great thing about this is, um, hang on. So I don't know if you can see, but maybe I can make this bigger. Yeah, is, um, it's very beautiful, obviously. And within the text, oh, you know what? It picked up, no, no, this is right. Is, not only the kind of the uh, pretty, um, you know, flowery stuff, but there's actually images. Now, hang on here. Oh, let's see. We'll do this. Um, there's uh, images of, oops, within the Bible. This is creation of, of, of Eve. So, you know, you think about a child who, you know, there's no telephones, there's no TV, there's nothing. I mean, this is enrapturing for a young person. So she ends up basically just devouring language, devouring the Bible. In fact, there was a lot of these kind of stories about this woman. Ugh. And the supporters of her said, you know, she memorized the Bible, the entire Bible. This was kind of a, a story told of her. She knew the Bible from heart. 
Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? This woman, our girl Yvonne Grimbach. So she, uh, anyway, so this is, you know, some very interesting, but this is, the, this is what she had as a young child. And as you can imagine, this costed a lot of money. I mean, this is, um, you know, this would, I don't know exactly how much, but lots of money. Lots and lots and lots of money for that. So it was a very valuable possession for her. So as you read, she will draw upon Scripture constantly. And that's, that's kind of what we're going to be kind of dealing with, is how she interprets the Bible. But the main, one of the, she, she, she quotes hundreds of passages of Bibles, but one that she quotes often, almost always, is from Matthew chapter 10. And so we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 10. Uh, so, in fact, if you have your, I handed out Bibles, so grab a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 10. But, again, so just, just, just as a reminder, this, this handout, oh, by the way, I'm sorry, nice little statue. This is uh, from this town, Diefert, Germany. She uh, most likely died there. And then this picture down here on the bottom is a woodcut from one of the pamphlets that was sent out. And she's the one on the left side. Notice she's all alone. And I don't know if you can tell, but in her hand is the Bible. And on the flip side, on the other side, is kind of the university faculty. And the gentleman that's in the front is holding a glove from like a string. I don't know if you can see that. And that's basically a sign of argument. And theoretically, I, I think this is it. I would have to go look this up, but the book in between them, the books in between them would be the banned writings of Martin Luther. But she's making the point that everything that's on the ground is is from the Bible. And she's pretty she's a smart she's a smart lady. So one of the fun things, and I, I can't remember if it's in the letter that I sent to you. We're we're only reading a couple of things. Is um she says, hey, you guys say everything Martin Luther writes is heresy. But what did Martin Luther translate? The Bible. So she points out, <laughs> she points out that if everything of Martin Luther is a heretical, then, in fact, you claim the Bible to be heretical, which goes to show how far off the reservation you, you all are. I mean, it was, I think it's hilarious when you read that. <laughs> Yeah, but, but uh, Martin Luther, he knows, he knew the Bible too. Oh, yeah, right. Well, and this is great too, and we'll see this. Well, here, let's turn to Matthew chapter 10, but we'll, we'll talk about, this is really important for her because she never claims to be Lutheran, which is really fascinating. She can't, she's Catholic. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, there's only one church, yeah. So, yeah, this is really important for us because this is why I really enjoy reading her too, not only for her kind of her wit, but also... Um, she's pretty, I mean, she's, yeah, she's smart. So they, everyone who's um, arguing with her and claiming she's a heretic and some other terrible things that are said of her, things that are not appropriate for her to be repeated, uh, she, so she has all these terrible things said to her, but yet she's, she keeps kind of coming back to this point that you guys haven't really actually said anything. And you say I'm a Lutheran, but yet I've already shown you that Luther is just about the Bible, so please actually argue with the Bible. I mean, it's just, it's really, really great stuff. Okay. Oh, so Matthew chapter 10. Turn into, it's, uh, we're, gonna, we're not going to read every single verse. We're going to kind of move quickly through this because the passages that she quotes the most are from Matthew chapter 10, 32 and 33, which says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. She quotes that regularly. Because, again, she's doing something that, up to this point, not, no other woman has done. To 
confront uh, university faculty. Okay, but anyways, let, uh, let's kind of step back a little bit. So Matthew chapter 10 is, uh, you know, starts out with the 12 apostles and Jesus sending out the 12 apostles. Now what Jesus does is, is something that God has done from the beginning. He provides shepherds and servant leaders for his people. He calls leaders to serve the people. So now Jesus is just following, I mean, so think about it, right? Um, I did it with the uh, uh, pastor chats. Moses, what was Moses, what was his job when, Jesus, when God called him to, to lead his people? Trick question, though. Oh. Shepherd. Did you guys say shepherd? No. Oh. Yeah, he was shepherd. He's keeping uh, track of the flocks. And then the burning bush comes and it's like, hey, you got to go lead my people. So, um, so Moses is a shepherd, leads his people. I mean, all, they're all through the Old Testament. What was David doing? He's a shepherd, right? Samuel comes to Jesse, hey, none of these, where's, you got another guy, don't you? Because none of these, God doesn't pick any of these people. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's taking care of the flocks. He's just a, you know, runt. All right, come and get him. Boom, he'll be that guy. So, so Jesus now takes a group of fishermen and tax collectors and goofballs to now carry out his work, okay? So um, now the thing is, though, in chapter 10, you have these two things happening. So the whole church is, is to participate in the, the calling to be salt of the earth and light of the world. That's from Matthew chapter 5, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, but now we get a distinction. Not every, question, not every Christian is sent in the same way. Some are sent in a narrow sense, like pastors and ministers of the gospel, and the others are sent in a more general way, according to their baptism. Now, this paradigm, uh, and this is based on Romans chapter 12, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the whole body, right? Some are meant to be eyeballs, and some are meant to be kneecaps or whatever, you know. So, it doesn't really say kneecaps in the Bible. No, but Paul makes this analogy is that there's one body, but we all have different parts. And the body is most healthy when they work within those same parts. If the eyeball, I can't remember now, is the eyeball says to the hand, you know, I want to be a hand, doesn't work because an eyeball is an eyeball. Yeah, okay. I think it's eyeball and hands. I got, I got, okay. Anyway, so. You see this, that the Apostle Paul flushes this out even more. So in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10, you have now Jesus talking to the 12. They're going to go out and preach his message. So you have the, the proclaimers and the proclaim to. You have the, the preachers and the preach to. You have the speakers and the listeners. I mean, you have this giving and receiving. But the giving and receiving is the church itself. And they are meant to be salt and light uh, of the world. So Argula is fitting within this paradigm. She's understanding that she has a place in the body according to her baptism. But she also knows that there's a, dis there's a distinction between her and these, what, yeah, I can't remember, she's got some nice names for these so-called theologians. And when she confronts them, argues with them, she is not trying to be, be them, but she's actually telling them, wait a second, your job is to do this, so do this. And, and so she fits within this paradigm very well. All right, so that, that's in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 through, well, we'll read it real quick. Okay, so Jesus picks the 12, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pain, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. 
and whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Okay, within this, I already mentioned there's a distinction. Uh, In verse 10, the worker is worthy of his food. That's really important because um, those who are proclaimed to are to tend to the proclaimer. Now, again, he says, don't take any gold, silver. So no one proclaims the gospel for wealth. But at the same time, no one proclaims the gospel, you know, to, to, to die. And this is what's interesting is Argula, when she petitions those who are proclaimers to be worthy of their food, she's saying, give us the gospel, not these man-made things you're, you're discussing. So she's calling them back into the, pla- to the place of, of proclaimer. That's good. That, that's helpful for us as we read this. All right, now, the next section, Matthew 10, 16 through 23. So again, these, these instructions are mainly for the 12, with the, the rest of us kind of looking on the outside in. Again, Jesus is, is giving, giving some calling, calling to one, while the rest of the group is around them, uh, metaphorically speaking, because we're reading the Bible. And then he will come to speak to everybody in a little bit. Okay, now, uh, Matthew 16, 10, 16 through 23. Jesus continues with the 12, but now things are getting a little darker. Persecution, torture, and death are likely. So before this, though, when the disciples get this instructions to uh, preach, preach, repent, for the, you know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, what has happened to Jesus so far in Matthew chapter 10? A lot of people have been healed, and a lot of people really like him. It's gaining, gaining popularity. So I can only imagine the disciples when they're like, sweet, I get to do what Jesus does. And then now here, this is the next step. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in, your, in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. All right. So, things are getting darker. Persecution, torture, and death are likely. So, again... The favorite Bible passage, or the most quoted Bible passage, is Matthew 10, 32-33 for Argula von Grimbach. Again, she knew her Bible, so she understands what's all around this Bible passage. She doesn't quote this in kind of out of context, but precisely in context. So when she is, she is, uh, she has to defend this young man, Seehofer, because she sees it as this young man being devoured by wolves even though there are within the church. And these are not pagans. These are baptized Christians devouring. So, um, so she, she's understanding this. And also, she's understanding that there's going to be results for this. And as, as um, if you ever have a desire to read more of her letters, she's very clear on this. So much so is that her husband becomes a persecutor of her. Her husband, Frederick, uh, remember he was a knight. He married, he married up, and he got a nice job. 
taking care of some towns and some lands. Well, when Argula started having this confrontation with the university professors, the Duke, uh, mainly the Duke uh, Wilhelm in that area, who, who's out of Munich, says, um, you know, to the husband, listen, basically get your wife under control. I mean, it sounds terrible, I know. <laughs> and there's a lot of like terrible things about this. Get your wife under control or you're going to lose your job. Now, the thing is, so we have no real record of him. In fact, his kids really have no respect for him. They kind of, when they write to their mother, they're kind of like, he's a peasant. He acts like a peasant. I mean, yeah, so not a lot. Here's the thing. I, I don't know. I don't know if it gets lost in translation, but some of the things they say, I'm like, I, I, I can't believe people actually talk to people that way. It's amazing. So, so if you get sick after reading it, it's normal. But the whole point, though, is Frederick then loses his, loses his position. And so there's a writing, there's a letter from her that says, basically, he's persecuting, and nobody knows what this means, he's persecuting the Christ in me. So there's definitely some sort of, like, confrontation going on in the household. Um, but so she, she understands this in a real way. This is not a theoretical thing. She's being, she could be bodily being, she could bodily being persecuted, persecuted bodily. Um, now, the thing is, though, too, about this, now back to the text. Jesus says this mission, so this, you have the sense of urgency with this mission for the 12. These things have to happen. They got to come. They got to, they got to go. Because um, the judgment is at hand. Judgment is at hand here. And you need to, you need to get this word out. So one of the other passages that Argula quotes most often is from Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, which is kind of an apocalyptic end-time passage. She has like the same sense of urgency. I mean, to the, to the university professors, they're like, listen, if you don't, if you don't take care of this, you're going to be in God's judgment. You're denying God right now. So, um, so, so again, she quotes this from Matthew chapter 10 with a very specific purpose. She, she, she's intentionally doing this because what she sees in Matthew chapter 10 is happening before her eyes. But the opposite. Rather than confessing the faith, you have a bunch of people who are supposed to and are not, and she's like, ah, we need to do something about this. So, you know, you've got to be shrewd as serpents. Or, you know, uh, how does it translate it? Wise as serpents. Well, wise, it's shrewd. <laughs> and then innocent as doves. Um, now, that's, that's what we for Because she, again, calls upon the Holy Spirit. She says, I'm not talking. It's the Bible talking. I didn't make this up. God made this up. So she, she's utilizing this notion that's in... Matthew chapter 10, verse 19, or but 19 and 20, that it's not her speaking, but it's the Holy Spirit speaking. Precisely in the Word of God. Again, so I think she's, uh, she's basically interpreting Matthew 10 very personally and contextually and then applying it, which is fantastic. All right, well, let's skip ahead to Matthew 26 through 31. And this is what we read in chapel. Uh, pay attention to how many times Jesus says, do not fear. Right? Um, and here is somewhat of a hinge. Things are moving now from just the 12 now into all Christians. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
and not one of them will fall into the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will, all, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And that's the hinge. So it goes from the 12 disciples. Then it starts now, everyone's going to have to confess. So everyone who acknowledges me I don't know if the NIV, I think, uses the word confess, but it's, it's the word for confess. Acknowledge is also can be translated as confess. So there's three do not fears in this Bible passage. So it's like triple encouragement. But this promise of encouragement does not promise any sort of absence of suffering. Um, the first one is do not fear the opponents. You don't have to fear these people because what's hidden will be revealed. Um, so, so basically, Argula is saying, listen, guys, what's in your heart will be revealed on the last day. Pay attention. Um, and then the second do not fear is do not fear the relationship. Uh, they, might, they might burn you at the stake, but... God's relationship with the Christian is not destroyed, even if the enemies destroy their body. So Argula is really confident in the fact that if she has to be burned at the stake, she knows that God is still present in her life. Even though those who are burning her at the stake are saying precisely the opposite. Again, I mean, I, you know, it's one thing to be persecuted by non-Christians it's a whole other thing to be persecuted by people who are, who say they're Christians. You know, so it can be very, I mean, this is a very difficult time if we kind of take a step back and think about it. And then, and then the last one, of course, is Jesus' invitation to not be afraid comes from an uh, argument of lesser to greater. Hey, the sparrows are taken care of. So if they're going to be taken care of, you're going to be taken care of. So don't, do not fear. All right, now, boom, now we get into this chapter 10, 32, and 33. So, Romans chapter 10, verse 10, Paul says, um, well, here, we can just, if you want to keep your finger in there, but um, this is, a, a, again, a Bible passage about confessing the faith or acknowledging Jesus. Um. Okay, so Romans chapter 10, verse 10 and following. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is, is, so whatever's in the heart of a Christian is to be confessed, to come out. Now, this is where things get complicated, or not complicated, but we have to distinguish, because again, there are the two callings of Christians, one in a narrow sense and one in a general sense. The calling of, uh, like being a pastor, and the calling of every baptized Christian. Pastors have an especially specific job to preach the gospel. Forgive sins, baptize, and, and administer the Lord's Supper. So, Argula, again, is she, she kind of waits and says, okay, someone's going to speak up because this is, what, this is their job, right? You know, it's like when the garbage man doesn't come and pick up, you're like, oh, we'll give it a day, right? Because that's their job. They're going to come back and pick up the garbage. Well, you wait a week and you're like, i got to start doing something now, right? It's not my job to pick up the garbage. But I better call them and say, hey, do your job. This is Argula. I mean, much more serious. It's a simple analogy, but I'll tell you what. The garbage ain't picked up. Serious business, so... In fact, the other day, yeah, Pastor Chats, hilarious story. I went around and asked, hey, where do you guys want to be when you grow up? This is for the uh, preschool, pre-K, and kindergartners. Any of you remember there? Young man said garbage collector. 
I was like, that is such a great job. You do not know how important that is. I think the, mo- I think, I think the, the mother was kind of like, oh, jeez. I was like, no. I was like, and then I think he kind of was like, why is he making such a big deal about this? But I was like, great job. This is so good. This is important. They love the garbage trucks. The, all yeah, three of my grandsons, that's a yeah. great gift to give a little smile. They love the garbage trucks. <laughs> Listen, I mean, becoming a garbage man is even I mean, easier now. They don't have to get out of the, the truck. They got that little arm thing that goes, okay. Beside the point. Anyway, so Argula now is at the point where she is saying, hey guys, hello. This, your, this is specifically your job. Okay, well, I guess if, if, I mean, we all have this job, but especially you. So again, if every Christian who has faith in Christ cannot help but speak of, of their Savior. Um, again, you know, it's, she's now entering into a different analogy. This is where, like, um, Okay, so uh, I, I brought some food. I'm just going to relate it to food. Some of you might like certain foods that other people don't like. But because you like it, you're like, hey, I've got to share this information to somebody. So I brought a, a jar of sor- sorrel. Sorrel? sorrel? <laughs> Anyone know what sorrel is? So it's like a weed, basically. Not yeah, not sorrel. That's sorrel, right? Sorrel is like a green plant. It's probably in your yard, unless you have uh, uh, somebody come by and spray. Uh, but there's different kinds of sorrel. You can you can grow it in your garden, actually, if you want. You can buy seeds for it. Anyways, Holly found this jar of pickled and brine, salted brine. You know what brine is, right? Okay. I really enjoy it. I tell you what, it looks gross. <laughs> kind of a dark green, kind of a sludge, kind of like... Canned spinach? <laughs> uh, yeah, but a little grosser, I think. Yeah, you're, that's a good thing. I didn't think about that. Yeah, right. Good job, Jeanette. Man, Downton Abbey and then canned spinach. This is great. All right, so here's the thing. I love it. It's in my heart. It is in my heart, it's going to come out. So I go and say it. No matter what, I'll say it to the rooftops. I love this stuff. I think uh, the vicar and Pastor Bruzek was like, okay. (laughs) Yeah, they're not having any of it. But I'm going to put it on my potatoes and my parsnips today, which is another thing a lot of people think. Okay, anyways. So, you, you know, when you share the faith, a little bit of you is kind of like that. You're kind of like, man, I love, the, I love Jesus so much, and I kind of don't really care what you think, but I, I really would like you to like it too, because then we can kind of share in the same love, you know, like, hey. Argula, is, this is what she's doing. She, she loves her Savior. She loves God's Word. And the fact that these guys who should love it the same way aren't doing it, she's like, she can't, she's just... She can't help herself. She's gotta. She's gotta confess Jesus. So Romans ten gives another kind of another look on what's happening in Matthew chapter ten thirty two through thirty three. But the thing is, though, is like she. So what she's saying is that Jesus. So you know, she's she's in this situation where she has to confess Jesus before men. Uh, not I mean men literally, but also just humankind. Um, and she said, basically, Jesus is, Jesus is my Savior. He, I'm his, he's mine. Well, at the end of time, Jesus says the same thing back. You are mine. That's right, you're mine. And the danger is, to see, denying Jesus leaves open the opportunity for Jesus to agree with you. Okay, I, I guess I'm not yours. And that's the danger that Argulus sees these theologians in. She sees them denying Jesus, and she's afraid for their souls. Were they actually saying that? that they were because they had taken God's word, and you'll see this, out of the equation and put their own rules in. So they've taken what is God's, taken it out and put man's in. And that's idle. So yes, they had did say that. But um, 
but what's important though is is that Argulus sees it this way, and she's coming from a not a like, hey, I'm right, but I'm concerned for you. Please, you know, please make this whole situation right. Um, and this is really important because at, you know she understands though, and the way the reason why she's so adamant about these guys changing their ways is because of Peter. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's two instances where the word deny is used. Matthew chapter 10, and then the other time is when, G- when Peter denies Jesus three times. The thing is, though, is what happens at the end of Matthew. I mean, Peter denied Jesus before men. But Jesus feeds the cooks for fish. That's not Matthew, but yes, that's in Luke. But the whole point, though, is right. He's welcome back. And it's especially made note of in the other Gospels. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. So, arguably understands there's still time. There's still time to change. But it's urgent. you got to do it. you got to do it now. So she has a sense of urgency precisely because she doesn't want them to die and then Jesus say, do you want me to, you know, I, I agree with you. I mean, there's a famous passage in, in The Great Divorce that I always think about C.S. Lewis writing. George MacDonald, an English author, is, it's, it's a fictional story, but um, there's a real person named George MacDonald. And he says to this man who's, who's basically on this magic trip, I mean, I, we, we kind of study this for those who don't know, but the story is about a, like a magic bus ride from the gates of hell to the gates of heaven. And this man is coming and is led by George MacDonald, the dead English Christian writer. And at the kind of end of the, towards the end of the book, George MacDonald says there's two kind of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And to those God says, thy will be done. And this is the, this is the thing for, this is the image that Argula von Grimbach is concerned about. Because God will not force you into heaven. This is really important. I mean, he's not coercive and manipulative. So the only people, I mean, he, he has the, the gates of heaven are open to all believers. But he doesn't force people who don't believe into heaven. Um, and so that, there's a phrase, Pastor Bruzek's used this often in the past. I don't know, if, you know, the gate of hell is locked from the inside, not the outside. So, so Argula understands there's still time left. You can be like Peter. Your relationship can be sto- restored. Okay. Is there a hand up? Yeah, Marilyn. I just was struck on page 26 of this. Yeah. She says, for all Christians have a responsibility to know the word of God. And I think that's that's right. Important thing that she is stressing that it's not—it's not just up to the theologians. Yeah, right. Well, and th- this is really important for us. Is that um, <laughs> okay? Argula again. Argula is working under this premise that we all have callings. We all have a place in the body of Christ, and that it's broken when those who don't, who aren't. Uh, doing what they should be doing or, or doing something else. So again, it's calling back to the place where God has placed you. And what she's really confident on is the fact that when everyone works according to their calling, everything works well. But when other people are trying to do other people's callings, things fall apart. Now, of course, this is going to be the very, well, I'm not going to try to give too much away, but this is the very argument that she's trying to make. But those theologians are thinking the exact opposite. She's trying to do our job. Well, she's not. <laughs> um, she's calling you back to do your job. Yeah. So, in the she mentioned she's got this mobile. Yeah, right. Um, does the fact that she's speaking at the writing, yeah. then 
make it less surprising because as a noble, she's kind of called to call people out? Or does it make it more surprising because perhaps she's threatening the privileges she has with her nobility by... Yeah, it, it depends on if you, want to, if you want to give her the benefit of the doubt. So I think from the benefit of the doubt, she's, she actually does have this kind of like, hey, I'm of the noble class. Again, whether you want to argue that's appropriate or not, that's another discussion for another day. But given the circumstances of the 16th century, she's of the noble class, and they have a responsibility to take care of the peasants, which that could be pejorative or not, I don't know. But giving her the benefit of the doubt, she sees this as a Christian responsibility, I think. Because the only other way, I mean, she mentions it a lot. Hey, don't forget, I'm part of the von Stauff family. Okay, either, either, yeah, she's proud and arrogant, or she's reminding people, hey, this is what the nobility does. If, does she do that maybe to protect herself? Is that, hey, I'm supposed to be doing this? Oh, yeah, okay, good. Now, see, now you're getting into a lot of interesting questions because you have this, you have the fact that she's a woman. And a noble woman, of course, yes, she's, no, she's of noble class, but it should be the man doing it. And that's where the kind of the patriarchal society comes into play. Uh, and so she's kind of working within this whole framework, which I think she's working in a very uh, complicated way. Again, it's, she's behooved, she, she really makes this point. She's like, no one has said anything. That's why I waited a little bit longer, because I'm expecting, I, and she throws in the text from First Timothy, women are to be silent which isn't great, uh, uh, that has nothing to do with what she's doing, but she's thinking that the professors are going to say that of her. Hey, this is church business. You don't, you don't, you don't have any authority here. Well, it's, it's not. It, that, it, and so that, again, reveals the theologian's weakness, the English thought weakness, that they basically are living high in the hog and don't know anything. I mean, they, she knows more of the Bible than they do. And the only way that they can keep her quiet is not by arguing from the scripture, but by using their, like, their earthly power to say, you're going to be arrested if you don't be quiet. I mean, that's the argument. <laughs> if you don't be quiet, you're going to jail or, you know, worse. So there is no, this is the great thing about her, though, is that she uses that nobility class in a servant sort of way. She's also smart, shrewd, insofar... Well, maybe that's it, it's not no William Shakespeare reference there. Just she's shrewd, she's wise, knowing that they are going to receive this in a particular way. So she's trying to head off that argument before it starts. So she's trying to remove that so that they can actually listen to her point. So she she's really good. I mean, I think she's really good at that. Um. You know, she throws in a lot of extra Bible verses, which I'm kind of like, well, you could have just, you know, Joel 2 is in there, a lot of prophets, a lot of the apocalyptic stuff is really thrown in there. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But of course, I'm, you know, I went to road that way. Big deal. Um, yeah, so these are good questions because you have this. She's trying to do some good, but she, she's got a lot of things working against her. But she's not. She's still going to do it, which is great, and she's going to do it in a Christian way, which is really good. Jeanette. One of the things that's working against her, the fact that she's defending a young eighteen-year-old kid. Yeah, right. All of a sudden, come up with these. I mean, how? You know, does that have? Well, she also makes she makes a reference to. This. She's like, why is all this fuss going on for an eighteen-year-old? You know, you know, youth are dumb. Give them a chance. Don't burn them at the stake. And, and, and she does make that reference. She's like, oh, there's still some good that can come out of them. Again, she's really generous in that respect. Also, too... But is that the start of her involvement? Yeah, it's, it's this, young, this young man. Yeah, this 18-year-old man. And so she is... She, again, she sees this as a great travesty. Oh, I never mentioned this. It might be in the reading. She already knows about the martyrdom that's happened in Belgium, the Lutheran martyrs. So she's very concerned that this is going to be starting a trend. And she sees this young man as a Christian faithful to Scripture. She doesn't see this as like a Lutheran. 
that those those categories are still not they're not they haven't been created yet everyone's part of the same church so she defending him i mean this whole story starts with him oh yeah and her defending him that's right and then all hell breaks loose because you have all these things now happening that she needs to respond. Because she's got a good name. She wants to defend herself. And you have um, uh, other people helping her eventually. I mean, yeah, it's not just her. But like I said, I kind of already told you, she's well connected within what eventually becomes Lutheranism. Martin Luther, uh, von Staupitz, uh, Staupitz. But because she's close to Nuremberg, there's another Lutheran... Uh, pastor Andreas Osiander. She's also well known in um, Regensburg, which flip flops back and forth from Lutheranism to Roman Catholicism. And she's just well connected. So she she really is uh, sensitive to those things. But again, she doesn't see this as like two churches arguing. It's one church within. And if you have People who are faithful to Scripture being persecuted or burned at the stake or martyred, it's like, this, this has to stop now. And that's why, in her mind, it's such a travesty no one's speaking up. But because God has equipped her from Holy Scripture, from her parents giving her this Coburger Bible, she now has this responsibility. Because not everyone had a Bible. So she knows that not everyone can do this. She can. So she does. And again, her authority, though, is precisely in the scripture and in her baptism. And that, that's really important for everyone to kind of keep in mind. Again, the, the response to her is you're trying to subvert church authority. But her argument is, you're not listening to the Bible. That's it. They want to make it about something else, because if it's about church authority, then they can burn her at the stake and be, make it quiet. But if it's about the Bible, that means she actually has to, they, have to, she, they actually have to argue with Scripture back. Which sounds very similar, doesn't it, to another argument that happens with Martin Luther, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, We'll stop right there. All right, anyway, so are you LeVon Grimbach? I, yeah, hopefully the, 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 two, the two handouts. The one handout, again, is a historical kind of introduction to who she is. The other one is the letter to the faculty at Ingolstadt. The faculty at Ingolstadt. And again, this is her defense of this young man, Seehofer. But what we want to do is take a look at how she uses scripture in that. Then next week, we're going to do that. We're going to take a look at how she uses scripture. And then in addition to that, we're going to discuss something that many people who are, actually, uh, some of the historians are saying she uses, she, she uh, is a great defender of the priesthood of all believers. And so we're actually going to take a look at what is the priesthood of all believers because that actually helps us in understanding why she writes the way she writes. Because in Lutheranism, there is no priesthood of all believers, because that phrase actually doesn't exist. It's the universal priesthood of the baptized. Now, some people will be like, oh, does that mean the same thing? Well, I guess, but I'd rather use the language that we have. Every Christian's baptized. And that is where we have our authority. It's in the baptism it's out of our hands. It's from God. It's not, our, it's not our belief that gives us authority. It's Christ himself. So we'll talk about that next week, too. And that's really important because um, it goes to what Marilyn said earlier. Everybody should be learning the scripture and using it in a way. Well, I know it's a silly example, but I think it's a good example. You know, we should be talking about all the things we love, like sorrel and brine. I know this so well, and I love this, and I want you to love it, too. But in this day and age, they couldn't all be in the scriptures because the Bible was readily available. Well, that's right. So, but again, this is part of the Lutheran Reformation that comes up, is that, oh, hey, we have this technology now that everyone can have a Bible.
But you know, uh, but, yeah, Jeanette makes a good point. We need to keep this in mind too. Where did people learn their Bible? In church. So it was mainly through listening and meditating. And, but of course, during the, during the Middle Ages, you went to church not to hear God's word, but to, to uh, you know, kind of receive, just, well, not even receive the sacrament, right? I mean, it was in this little history lesson, you know, all you had to do was see it back in those days. That's what she was saying, that That's right. you feel you're not preaching the Bible for the people that need it. I'm nobility. I, ha- I yeah, right. have a Bible, so I need to be steering you or helping them because you're not. Yeah, right. So she, yeah, she basically says you should be preaching. Why should they be preaching? Because they're preachers. And they know the Bible and have a Bible. Well, and that, that's the debate whether, do they really know the Bible? Yeah. <laughs> no, they're supposed to, though. That's exactly right. Yes, they do. All right, Tracy. Uh, is there a Friday Bible study next week? Because of the woman's... There still is Bible study. Absolutely, Tracy. Yeah, the next time we will not have Bible study is February 28th. But till then, we'll have Bible study every Friday. Okay. And what pages did you mention? Uh, okay, so the one you're going to read, not, you can go ahead and read that one, Tracy, but the one underneath it, that packet. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, okay, by the way, so in that packet is her letter of defense, but it's preface that has a preface, and nobody knows who wrote the preface, but it was either Andreas Osiander, a famous pastor from Nuremberg, or the cathedral preacher from Munich of, the, of Duke Wilhelm. So that's, a, uh, that's another interesting thing, and that's, that's really, I think... Her nobility connections really helped her out a lot from just not being arrested or, you know, murdered. So, um, uh, yeah, you have the preface, you have the letter from her, and then at the end is the articles that he had to, Seehofer had to refute. So, all you really have to do is read the letter, but I thought I'd give you the, kind of the whole thing. All right, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.